spend some time in the word this morning. Dear gracious Father, we thank you so much for your son, for Jesus, to come and die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and rose again on the third day. We're very thankful that you who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until your son comes back. We thank you that you've given us your spirit that leads us and guides us. And we ask that your spirit would be leading us and guiding us this morning, that we would think about the truth that's found in your text appropriately, that we would, by the help of the spirit, apply the truth of your text so that we may be wise and present ourselves before you, holy and blameless. We ask, Father, that uh, you'll just be with me, uh, that you will help me uh, say the words that are appropriate and edifying to your, to your people, and that uh, as we walk away from this place, we would say it, would be, it was good to be in the house of the Lord this morning and to hear from his word. We are very thankful and just ask your blessing on this time. In your son's name, amen. So this past week, uh, Krista and I, we got the opportunity to go down to Bremerton, first time in Bremerton. We were there for a, uh, a regional, uh, IFCA regional, and uh, I was, uh, had the, the privilege and honor to be on a panel discussion uh, that took place, and the panel discussion was uh, young pastors and kind of our perspective of going through the past 18 months, and uh, some of the older pastors wanted to hear our perspectives, and so it was a panel of us, of us younger pastors just kind of talking about the past 18 months. And the first question was, what, what kind of blessings has the Lord brought in your life for the past 18 months? And I couldn't help but think of you, the church body, and how gracious you guys have been to me and to Greg these past 18 months. And as I listen to many churches and many church leaders talk about some of the problems that they've had in the past 18 months, uh, we have been incredibly blessed by the Lord to... Uh, handle the situation as, as we have and, and your graciousness towards, towards me and towards the leadership and, and handling the past 18 months. And I really do believe that you guys are a great blessing in my life. One of the other things I said was that I, I just feel incredibly blessed that anyone who ever listens to my burnt offering of a sermon and walks away going, I understood what he said, is truly a gift from God. And I'm very thankful that anybody understands any sentence that comes out of my mouth during my sermons. The second question, as you can understand, was probably a little bit more interesting. Uh, it was, what have been some of the challenges <laughs> the past 18 months? And uh, you'll probably be shocked at some of our answers. Uh, one, one gentleman, I'm not going to say that it was Robert Zink. Uh, I refuse to share his name. But Robert was stood up first, and Robert said the biggest... Uh, the biggest problem in his church is himself, to which a whole bunch of us brothers encouraged him by saying amen. And there may have been one brother who said, yeah, and Robert's the biggest problem in Lewis and Clark Bible Church as well. So uh, it was really funny. But we all concurred with him, and we all said similar things, that the biggest challenge to my ministry 
is Caleb Hilbert. I am my biggest challenge. <laughs> uh, why isn't ministry going better for Caleb? What's his biggest challenge? I have to deal with myself. The second biggest challenge the past 18 months has been the challenge that has been the challenge of the church for the past 2,000 years. It's the flesh. The biggest problem the past 18 months has been the flesh. Masks, vaccines, that stuff is secondary to the bigger issue, sin nature, right? That, that, that's, that's the real issue. That, that's the real problem. This morning, we're going to look at the flesh in Proverbs 16. We're going to see a, a portrait of the flesh. So Proverbs 16, uh, we're going to be in verse 25, going down to verse 30. What's interesting is last week, last week when we talked, we talked about a heart that is a heart of wisdom, a heart that is transformed by God's power and by his spirit and by his word. We we talked about the good quality traits that happen. And last week, if you remember, we said we all kind of start off with this default position of sinfulness, of being depraved, right? The word that we used is totally depraved, in this, not in the sense that I do the possible worst that I always can do, but that sin is, is such a big part of my life that the sin nature touches everything about me, right? So the way I make decisions is touched by sin. The way that I think is touched by sin. The way that I speak is touched by sin, right? Uh, uh, my emotions are touched by sin. All of me uh, is touched by sin, and therefore I am totally alienated from God because of my sin. We all were born that way, right? The book of Romans, the first three chapters, proves this beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we all start from a, from a bad position. We all start from a sinful position, from a broken, from a depraved position. And that's only through the work of God on our hearts and in our lives that there's any hope for us. And as God works on our hearts... There's this thing that comes about that when we hear the gospel, we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, because of the work of the Spirit on our heart, the Bible teaches that we are declared righteous instantaneously. So that moment I place my faith in Christ, God takes the righteousness of Christ, imputes that to me, imputes that to you, and says, this person is now righteous. This person is now forgiven. This person is now in a right relationship with me. Now, there's more that happens other than this justification that I'm declared righteous. I I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. I think we could argue all the members of the Trinity indwell the believer. Uh, I'm given this new heart, this new attitude, right? All this stuff kind of all happens at that moment. Um, and, And at that moment starts the clock of something else that we would call the sanctification process. So I'm, the moment I place my faith in Christ, I'm declared righteous. But from that moment on, until I see Jesus in this life, I'm trying to be made more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit from the Word, right? And that's what he's doing with us now. We are already seen as being righteous. The promises of Christ are already ours. We're children, but he's working on us every day, every moment to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. He, he's trying to make us righteous our life to be righteous when we die or the rapture happens or which one comes first um 
we will then stand before Jesus and we will then be actually completely sanctified. We will be righteous. We don't have to deal with this in nature anymore, right? This text that we're going to deal with is dealing with the flesh and the struggle that we have right now in between justification and glorification, this sanctification. That's what we're dealing with now. There's still some of that old fleshiness that's left over. And so the problem with talking about the flesh is that when we illustrate and when I talk about it and when you listen to it and you think about it, because both a non-believer and a believer both have fleshiness to them or they have carnality, right, the old King James, or there's still that sin nature, it's easy for us to talk about the flesh and say, well, obviously that talks about everyone outside of the church. Of course, that's true. It's a sin nature. Anytime you describe the sin nature, you describe people that have the sin nature. Of course, that's true. As believers, we also have this thing, the flesh. So we can describe something that, yes, describes people outside of the church, but it also describes aspects of ourselves. And so this morning... I want to avoid the temptation of of just always pointing outside the church and saying, of course everybody out there is evil. I think we can all agree. Yes, everyone outside is evil. But everyone in here also needs Jesus as well. And we have sinfulness and we still struggle with the flesh. So instead of pointing how bad everybody is outside, I want us to look at ourselves and see our own struggles and see our own flesh. Yes, of course, some of this stuff is going to overlap, and of course, we have to talk about some aspects of other people, but, but I want us to focus on ourselves. So in this text of Proverbs 16, verses uh, 25 through 30, I really want to point out three things, three characteristics. Not, these are not the only, but three that are listed here of fleshly people people that are given over to the flesh. And what does that look like when somebody's given over to the flesh? What does it look like when a believer's not yielding to the spirit and not being obedient? What does that look like? All right, so verse 25, we're going to see the first characteristic. And the first characteristic is deadly pride. So in verse 25, we're going to see pride. You want, you want to know a fleshly person? You're going to see pride, lots of it. Second thing we're going to see in verse 26 is driven by desire, right? So the first is deadly pride in 25. In 26, we're going to see that a, a fleshly person is driven by their desires. And then from 27 to 30, we're going to see that a fleshly person, just for the sake of keeping it alliterated, devises evil plans. But, but it's much more than they just devise it. They also, they also, they also carry it out. <clears throat> and a lot of their plans have to do with the things that they say. So 25, pride. 26, we're going to deal with uh, desire, and 27 through 28, we're going to talk about those evil plans, and, and they, they make up evil plans. This is what a fleshly person looks like. So, verse 25, notice what Solomon says here. He says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, you may say, well, this sounds pretty familiar. It's because almost word for word, we've seen this particular proverb already in chapter 14. But just think about the implication of this. Think about it and, and, and think about the newness of it. There's a way, right? So the word way is a metaphor for a lifestyle, a particular way of, of living one's life. 
So, to a man, there's a particular lifestyle, which, notice it says, seems right, and notice that it's right to this man. It, it, it seems to him to be righteous, right? So there's this man who sees a particular lifestyle and says that is righteous. Now, do not think that this is a, a good thing. This is not said in the tone of it being great. This is said more in the tone of somebody who is unwilling to consult God's word, uh, unwilling to yield to the power of the spirit. This is is talking to a person who's not consulting God, okay? This is talking about a person that consults themselves, right? Or they consult other people that think like them. Or they consult anyone other than God, right? That may be a better description. This is not someone who is seeking God's will for their life. This is, I'm right because I think I'm right because I've always been right, right? That's the, that's, that's the idea here, this, this incredible pride, this incredible narcissism, this delusion of self-righteousness, right? That, that's, that's here. As believers, we are to humbly go to God's word, spend time in God's word when making a decision, spend time in prayer, time thinking about it, and humbly go before the Lord in, in any situation, in any decision, and say, okay, here's what your text says. Here's the principles. I need your help in applying them to my life. And when I make a decision, that decision should be based off of scriptural principles where I'm trusting the Lord and I'm convinced that this is what the Lord has for me. And as I'm walking through life, I humbly say, this is what God wants me to do. And here's the scriptural principles that I'm pointing to to make this decision. Here are the reasons. But it's all in the sense of humility. This is what I think the Lord's asking us to do. And when you come into contact with somebody who might come up with a different opinion, you talk to them as somebody who's humble and says, I don't know, this is what I think the Lord would have us to do. It's all from a sense of humility. This person is not that. This person's the opposite. This person says, my name is Caleb Hilbert, and Caleb Hilbert is right. The end. And you're only right when you agree with Caleb Hilbert, right? Or insert your own name. I'm right because I'm right. And when you agree with me, you're right too. And you're on the right team. That's the idea. Only consulting oneself. Consulting anything other than the word. So notice what the result of this is. The result is, in the second part of 25, but its end, meaning the way, so it's not a good thing, the the end of that, that way is death. That way is separation from God. That way leads to, ultimately, we would say hell, right? Ultimately, we would say that if a person is not placing their faith in Jesus Christ has not submitted themselves to him, has not seen their own sinfulness, realized that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for their sins, was buried, rose on the third day, placing their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, anything other than that obviously leads to hell. And self-righteousness is in contradiction to faith and humbly accepting Jesus Christ, humbly yielding to Christ. So ultimately, this leads to hell. But I would also say this for the believer 
any time that we have the opinion that we are right beyond a shadow of a doubt and we don't have scriptural principles to back up, that leads to destruction. That leads to devastation, right? It's not good. Pride is not good for us. It's not good for us as a church. It's not good for us as individuals. But if you're not yielding yourself to the Spirit, you're not, you're not thinking of Christ, you're not thinking of the gospel, guess what your life is going to have a lots of? This type of attitude. This is the type of attitude that will come out of the flesh. This arrogance, I'm right because I'm right. This, this would be then one characteristic of the flesh. Not good, terrible. Notice the next one in verse 26. In verse 26, we're going to see that this person is driven by desires. Notice it says, A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. This word for worker is kind of interesting. It, it has the idea of somebody who does physical labor, but it's a person who does physical labor uh, with the sense of drudgery, right? There's a, there's a sense of, oh, I don't want to do that. It's kind of the idea of dragging your feet, right? That's, that's the idea here behind the word worker. So, so it, it's somebody who's not really excited, somebody who's not whistling while they work, it's somebody who's dragging their muddy boots across the floor as they're getting ready to go to work, right? That's the idea. So, so a worker, and then notice what it says. It says his appetite. One, this is an also interesting translation. I think it's the right translation, but that doesn't make it any less interesting. This is actually the word for soul here, the word for appetite, nefesh, and, and that has the idea of soul. But one of the aspects of the soul is desire, desiring to do something, motivation to do something. And so here, I think appetite's probably the best. One of the reasons I think that is because of the second part of verse 26 when it says hunger. So there's this, there's this idea of hunger, uh, idea of appetite, of desire. So there's a sense that here's this worker. He's, he, there's real drudgery and work, but there's, that, there's this desire, there's this appetite that works. Notice how the New American Standard puts it works for him, probably better translated that it pushes him to work, right? So the, so the idea is that the worker works because he has desire to accomplish something. Now, I, I don't think that this is Solomon's attempt at being Dr. Phil and just giving some sort of nice platitude for how to be a responsible citizen, I think there's something a little bit deeper here than just a guy who works, works because he's hungry. That's probably true as well, but there's something deeper. It it speaks to what drives a person to do what a person does, right? So when a person does what they do, what drives them to do that? There's this internal desire that causes them to do that thing. They're trying to accomplish something. And, and I think that's really the deeper meaning here, that there's something inside of us that drives us, that pushes us. And, and then notice the next part of the verse. It says, and his hunger urges him on. So, so, so that's the idea, that there's this, there's this inward desire that pushes someone to do something that they want to do so they can accomplish it. Once again, I don't think that this is just a little bumper sticker that you're supposed to put up at work 
so that you get more efficiency from your workers and just say, well, you know, if the guy really wants to clean up his life and work, let him starve a couple nights and then he'll be a good worker. Because an empty stomach is a great motivator to go and do a job. That's true, right? That's true. But I don't think that's what Solomon means here. I I think he means that there are something inside of us that pushes us to do something. I don't think he ascribes to it whether it's good or whether it's bad. We, we all have many desires that push us to do something, right? We all have desires. And some of those desires are great. Some of those desires are not. There's many times where we have great desires, but we go about it the wrong way, right? We try to accomplish that and satisfy those desires outside of God's timing and outside of God's will. That, that's when a good desire can become a bad desire. A person who's, who, who's controlled by the flesh is a person that solely looks at their own appetite and says, I don't care what I have to do, I'm going to try to satisfy that appetite. That ain't good. Uh, unfortunately, many times when we talk to other believers who are struggling with sins, and sometimes those sins, you would go, yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of a good desire, but you're going about it the wrong way. A lot of it's because they're not consulting God on how to live life. They just go, I have this desire, and I'm going to do this thing I desire to do. It may not even be a bad desire, but they do it the wrong way. They go about it the wrong way. They only consult their desire. By the way, I just want to point out one thing, just, just as way of observation in verse 26. Notice that it's his hunger that urges him on. The idea is that he has the expectation of satisfaction, but he's continually being pushed on by his hunger, meaning that there's absolutely no satisfaction, right? Because he's constantly working because he's constantly hungry. If he, wasn't, if he was filled and he was satisfied, he wouldn't be working, right? That's the, that's the, that's the implication, there's something that's pushing. There's a desire, and that desire is not being met. And, and I would say this unequivocally. There are many things that we desire that can be good, can be put in their proper place, but as the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us, they ultimately amount to nothing. Right? Being a good employee, there's some benefit, but if that's all that life is, is just working for a paycheck that's empty and it doesn't amount to anything. Having a big family and spending time with family is a good, is a good desire. But if that's everything and there's no consultation of God's word, then even Solomon would argue that in itself is not strong enough to satisfy the human. That's not good enough. You can try and try and try and it won't satisfy in fact, I'm only convinced, and, and, and there's a couple passages that pointed out, that the only thing that can truly satisfy me, those deep, deep desires in which I can be content, th- those deep sense of contentment and joy can only be found in the Lord. Let me show you. Go with me just quickly. Keep your finger here, but let's go to Matthew 5. Great statement that Jesus makes here in chapter 5. And let's just go to verse 5. 
I'm sorry, verse 6. You can still go to verse 5, but I might read from verse 6 because it would make a little bit more sense with the cross-reference. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, obviously, he's not talking about eating the pages of the Bible, right? He's talking about this inward desire to, to get something, right? So, so there's this inward desire, like hungering and thirsting. And notice that it's for righteousness. I think this is that righteousness which God gives us on the basis of faith. I think that's the idea here. That righteousness which comes from God. And notice what it says. For they shall be satisfied. You see that? They will be satisfied. It's only in this pursuit of God and the righteousness which comes from God and this right relationship with God that actually satisfies us. Allows us to be content. Allows us to have real joy and real peace. I'm really good at being dissatisfied. I really am. I'm, I'm really good at, 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 at having Christ and saying, yeah, but there's other things out there as well. Trying to fill my life with those other things. And it's, it's weeks like this when Penn State lose. And once again, I'm not going to talk ill about the character of the cheating Iowa State or Iowa uh, Hawkeyes and how they purposely hurt all of our players and how they paid off all the refs. I'm not going to do that. That's below us. No, right? If, if all of our life is caught up in... And, and all these other things. And it's not, it's not consumed with thinking of Christ and things from his word. And, and ultimately being satisfied in Christ. And we're trying to satisfy ourselves by all these other things. It's just not going to happen. It just can't. They're not strong enough. They're not big enough. But it's sad that we constantly go back to them to try to supplement our well-being with all these other things that are known to fail. They're buckets with holes in them. And we still are trying to fill up the bucket, and it's got a massive hole in the bottom. So back in Proverbs, you can see that a a, a fleshly desire to to be satisfied, to, to, to seek contentment, to seek peace, to seek joy in anything other than God, that's what the flesh does. It says, that thing looks good, it looks shiny, it looks like it will make me happy. Like there will be some deep-seated peace of saying, I have enough, but it doesn't. And that's what the flesh drives us to do. This is a portrait, a snapshot of sin nature. We have it. We have it in spades, right? Now there's another thing. Notice in verses 27 to 30. There's this idea of devising evil plans and then executing those evil plans. Kind of interesting how Solomon words this. But just notice in verse 27, it says, A worthless man, uh, by the way, the word here, I, I like the word scoundrel. A scoundrel man. I, I, I just like that. I think it rolls off my tongue really nice. So a scoundrel man, a, a guy that you look at and you go, Yeah, he's one of those rowdy people. He's a scoundrel. He's always, trying to, he's always trying to get something from me, and he's going to do it in a, in a really nefarious way, right? That, that's a worthless man. A worthless man, notice what it says, digs up evil. Now, in, in, in our vernacular, if we say, well, you're digging something up, it's exposing something, right? We would say, okay, there's a problem. It was kind of buried. 
uh, it was kind of dealt with, and then you're digging it back up to reveal it. That's not what's meant here. Dig up here is probably better to uh, plan, to cause. It has the idea of strategy. And so, so the idea is, is he's, he, it's like he's, he's digging a well, right? So he's digging. It's a plan. It's like a trap. So, so, so there's this plan, and this plan is evil. So, so there's this definite planning involved. Okay, he's thinking about it. And what does he want? He wants evil. And then notice this next part. While his words are like scorching fire. This guy's like a fire-breathing dragon. That's the phrase. His mouth is on fire. His words are fire. So not only does he, does he think of these plans, but he has incredible, incredibly inflammatory rhetoric. And so notice what this one does. Notice what this one does. Notice the first plan here, if we could call it the first plan. Here's the first example. Verse 28, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Right? So a perverse man is somebody who, it's literally an upside-down talker. That's the, what the phrase means. He's an upside-down talker. It has, it has the idea of somebody who talks out of both sides of their mouth. It has the idea of somebody who's willing to spread lies. It has the idea of somebody that's willing to spread lies on purpose. And so as he's, so think about this. Here's this one who has, fi- he's a fire breather. And, and what does he do? He, as he says his words, his words catch the forest on fire and it spreads fire and flames and destruction. By the way, doesn't that sound exactly like the book of James where James says everything has been able to be tamed except for the tongue? Just like a mighty forest fire can start from one spark. So a lot of problems can come from words that are mentioned from people. That's the image here. It's a fire breather who says something, and as it catches fire, it turns the whole thing on fire. And, and, and the idea is it causes strife. It causes fights. That doesn't happen in the church, right? I mean, we've never been in a church, because we're fully sanctified here, that there's never been a time that we've heard somebody say something that's wrong simply just to start a fight amongst church members, Right? I mean, we're more sanctified than that. We're, we're more concerned with the bigger sins. This might be one of those respectable sins that, that's okay to deal with and we can live with, but those other sins, oh, we can't have those other sins. This is absolutely devastating. And this is what happens when the flesh reigns. Now, notice the next part of verse 28, and it says, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. The word for slanderer is different, right? So the one guy, it's almost like he has two mouths. The slanderer is a guy who, he does this. You know, as he's walking away, he's mumbling under his breath, and he's grumbling, he's complaining, right? And and, and the idea is that he's grumbling and complaining, and as he's grumbling and complaining, he says, my boss doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's the dumbest man alive, right? Just purely just making up slanderous statements under his breath, mumbling. So one guy has two mouths, projecting it to anyone who will hear. The other one is blah, 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 blah. 
But, but he does that on purpose. He's not just, he's not just grumbling to, to, to vent steam. He's grumbling with the intention, notice what it says, to separate intimate friends. <laughs> the, the idea of intimate friends here is intimate friends, close friends, family members, uh, th- those who are like brothers. Once again, this never happens in the church, right? Slandering. Slander against somebody. The deacons didn't do this. They do that, what, for the purpose of causing dissension inside of the church? Separation fights? This is what happens when the flesh wins. This type of stuff happens. And and friends, this is really easy to do. You know how easy it is to grumble and complain and say something derogatory for the sole purpose of trying to win people for your team in some imaginary chess match that you're playing that nobody else is playing, but then all of a sudden becomes a reality where you have teams, it's this guy versus this guy, this lady versus this lady. In fact, the book of Philippians deals with this. You have two women who are fighting, and it's causing a church problem that the apostle Paul has to write and say, guys, please talk to these two ladies. There's an issue. Come on. Come on, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, can't you put some things aside? Can't there be some forgiveness? Can't there be some sense of I'd rather be wronged and keep the unity of the peace? I mean, look at Jesus. Now, you might say, well, Caleb, this, yeah, it might happen, but this might not happen to us. The next verse describes how easy this is. Notice in verse 29, a man of violence by the way, this, is, this, this would be a description of this worthless man, uh, would also be a description of the perverse man, would also be a description of the slanderer. A, a man of violence is, is really somebody who, it, it's really the word criminal. So it's, it, it speaks of a person that has a mind like a criminal who is thinking, how can I do the wrong thing? How can I do the wrong thing in this situation? How can I do the wrong thing and get away with it in this situation? That's how criminals think. So a man of violence, notice what it says, entices his neighbor. Why, why is this such a dangerous thing? Why, why, why is this something that we got to be mindful of? Because there are people out there that are tempting others to go along with them in their criminality, in their sinfulness, and it works. It works. You know how easy it is to rile people up and to get them to do things you know how easy it is to get people mad at someone else and rile them up and they'll all of a sudden join your cause? This is something that easily happens. And it especially is easy to happen when you have people that are not yielding to the spirit, who are not under God's word, and they're living by the sin nature, and that's the only thing they're consulting. And so when it's the flesh, and the flesh is inflaming the flesh, the flesh goes, let's do it. Yeah, I want to join. Where do I sign up? I'll be the general. And then notice, Solomon bears down on this idea of how enticing this can be. And it says, and he leads him. Meaning the violent man, the the scoundrel, leads his neighbor. This word for lead is is a lot like like a tour guide. Has the idea of somebody who is who is taking someone who doesn't know the terrain of the of, 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 the, of the place that they're at and says, let me show you where all this stuff is at. Let me show you what's over here. Let me show you what's over here. 
This, this person is like a trail boss. He's leading them step by step on how to accomplish all of this foolish behavior. He leads him, and notice, it's in a way, and I just like this, in a way that's not good. Well, that's an understatement, right? It's morally bankrupt. It's, it's sinful. It's fleshly. This is why this is so dangerous for us, friends. This is why the flesh, we need to always be on guard against the flesh, always be walking in the Spirit. Because if we're not walking by the Spirit, it's easy for someone to come up and tempt us to continue to walk in the flesh. And it's possible for us to go down a road, down a path, where we've done a whole bunch of fleshly things, and then we look around at all the destruction and we say, well, what do I do now? And I think the advice would have been, you should have done something a long time ago. This is a consequence of being enticed. It's easy. This is easy. When we're fleshly, this is easy. This is easy even if we're walking by the Spirit. It's easy to be tempted. Because a temptation can only work if we already want to do these things. I, I, I one time heard a joke. Uh, three pastors are on a boat, and they're fishing. And the one pastor, the most spiritual one, said, you know, I don't have a lot of people to talk to about my sins and pray for me and hold me accountable. And I was wondering if you gentlemen would help me and pray for me. And the other two pastors said, yeah, of course, of course we would. And they said, what, what's going on? And, the guy says, well, I, uh, during the week, when nobody's around, I drink the communion wine. And all the pastors go, oh, that's, that's terrible. The second pastor goes, well, I guess it's my turn. And he says, yeah, I, I hate to say this, but there are times where I, I have impure thoughts about some of the ladies in my, my congregation. And then there's this long pause as the other two pastors look at the third pastor thinking, it's your turn. And the man is sitting there rocking back and forth in the boat, sweating. And, and, and he's not saying anything. And the first pastor says, why are you not saying anything? And he goes, well, guys, my sin is gossip, and I cannot wait to get off this boat. That's the idea, right? Our, our flesh already wants to do these types of things already wants to have these types of attitudes. And so when we're, when, when we're given the opportunity to do it, we already go, yeah, I already want that. I, I, I already want to be a slanderer. I already, I already want to say negative things. I already want to cause division. I, like our flesh is saying, that's what we want. Bring the chaos. And our flesh already says, I want to, I want to, I want to be the bearer of chaos. Now, people think about this stuff quite a bit. I, I think sometimes we give people the benefit of the doubt when we shouldn't. And other times we, we give people the most nefarious intentions when we should be given them the benefit of the doubt. But notice, notice what these people do in verse 30. It says, he who winks his eyes does so to devise a perverse thing. And he who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I thought, what does that mean? What winking of eyes and making selfie faces? What, what? What does that mean? In the ancient world, these were symbols like the winking of an eye and, and, and the lips curling were common known uh, 
ways to enact a plan, right? So if you were to enact a trap and, and, and you're signaling to people, okay, now's the time to spring the trap, you would wink your eye, right? When you see my eye wink, then you know the plan's a go, right? And so here, the idea of a winking of an eye is this, this well-developed plan and timing of a plan and, and, and thinking of, of how, can I, how can I bring this about to, to cause chaos in someone else's life so that I may get something that they have. And, and it all, the whole plan goes off when somebody winks their eye. The whole plan goes off when somebody does a curl of their lip. And, and those were just common things that in the ancient world, when you saw somebody do that, you would go, okay, something bad's about ready to go down. Something evil is about ready to take place. This is what the flesh is, right? This is what the flesh does. The flesh does this stuff. Ambushes people, comes up with plans to try to hurt other people. Now, we could obviously look outside of the church and say, yeah, this happens all the time. This also happens inside of the church. And this is something that we're supposed to be watchful. We're supposed to watch our own souls over these types of things. And you would say, well, Caleb, how do you know that? I don't know, maybe because every single time the Apostle Paul writes, he mentions this particular types of things. He talks about the sin nature. He talks about the flesh and the problems of the flesh. And he talks about walking by the Spirit. Like, even our scripture reading this morning, which Greg and I did not get together and say, what should you read? That was simply just incredible providence. Let's go there. Let's go to Colossians 3. Notice what Paul says here in Colossians 3. I mean, let's start in verse 1 of 3. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, or with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body, a.k.a. the flesh, as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and greed, which amount to idolatry. Yeah, the flesh, right? Verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Think of this one. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self who is being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who's, uh, who's creating him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scathian, slave, free men. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, who has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, 
which is the perfect bond of unity. Let peace, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. He then goes on and talks about the family and how the gospel and this new reality of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers and reading his word changes family life. Then in chapter 4, he talks about how we work and how we talk. You understand the point. This is the problem. The problem is the flesh. We died to it, right? Isn't that what Paul says? We've already died to it. But we still participate in it. I think of it like this. When Jesus Christ was nailed on the cross, the New Testament gives the image that I also was nailed on the cross, right? My old self. And there's my old self hanging on the cross, slowly dying, right? He's already condemned. He's on the cross. But that old self is screaming, saying, hey, I'm thirsty. Hey, my back itches. Hey, could you come get me down? And we get a ladder. We go up to the cross. We put it on the cross. We climb all the way up. And we go to that old self, which Christ is crucified, and we go, hey, how can I make your life more comfortable? I know you're supposed to be dead. I know you're supposed to be dying. But I care about you. We had a good time back a couple years ago, didn't we? What can I do for you? And we willfully take that guy off the cross. We willfully carry him around on our back. And we willfully give him food and water and help him survive longer than what he's supposed to. The Apostle Paul says, no, you already died. Put that man aside. Don't, don't put him on your back. Put on Christ. Yield to the power of the Spirit. This is the solution, by the way. When we think of this passage in Proverbs and we see this terrible portrait of a fleshly person, Yes, we can be fleshly. That's the battle. That's the real battle. That's the real rub. The real solution is still Jesus. The real solution is still the word. And the real solution is yielding to the power of the spirit. Walking in obedience. And the result of that is the opposite of the flesh. Think about this description that we just read. That we read before the service and we just read now. Kindness, compassion, humility, forgiveness, peace, unity. How many times did he say thankfulness and joy? That's what the Spirit brings. So my, my urging to myself and to all of us here, let's not be fleshly. It's not worth it. Let's strive to yield to the power of the Spirit. Let's strive for this Christ-likeness, being made in the image of Christ. Because I guarantee you, it's far better to be in a place of compassion, in a place of humility, of love, of peace, and thankfulness. But realize this, that as you do that, the flesh will fight back harder. And all of those feelings of unity and of peace and of thankfulness will be replaced with the raging fire of disunity, 
of hatred, of trying to cause schism, of not being thankful, of complaining, of slandering, of gossip, of greed, of all of those things for which Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from. And the more we fight against it, the stronger it comes. I wish it would just end. I wish. I wish right now I could just be sanctified. But that's the process that God is bringing us through to make us more like Jesus. One day I will. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. I'm just admonishing us to stay the course, to yield to the Spirit, and know that when the battle is raging, that there will be a battle, and we have to yield to the Spirit regardless of that battle. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace with which you lavished upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that as we leave this place that we would be yielding to your Spirit, yielding to your power, that we would be, spend time in your word and pray. We pray, Father, that we would not fight against the, the or that in our fight against the flesh, that, that we would have the resolve, this holy resolve to, to live a life that's pleasing to you. We're so very thankful that even though that there's mountains and, and miles of failures, uh, that you are forgiving and that you who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until we see your son again. And so we just ask that you would help us, you would be with us, bring us back safely tonight that we may learn more from your word. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.